Since our colleague, the late Dr. Li Wenliang, sounded the first alarms of a novel coronavirus last December, COVID-19 has developed into a global pandemic. Not since the flu of 1918 has our society experienced this degree of threat to our health and to our happiness. This is a unique moment in our history, and we here at The Surgery Set are doing what we know how to do, which is to say podcasting, to help. We're telling the stories of this time from the people on the front lines. In these uncertain times, we want you to feel informed. We want you to feel supported. We want to give you the tools to be resilient in the face of what may be the hardest few months of our lives, and we want to remind you, frequently and forcefully, that you are awesome. These are the stories from the front line of this global crisis, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas for how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in social distance. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, this is The Front Lines of COVID, a Surgery Set series. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon trying my best. Welcome. Jill Tease is a general surgeon in northern Wisconsin, where she works at a critical access hospital. That's a small rural hospital that gets some additional support from the government in order to keep its doors open to communities that would otherwise have to travel long distances for care. I've known Jill for a few years now. We work together in the Surgical Collaborative of Wisconsin, where she leads a rural surgery initiative that works to provide education, resources, and a sense of community to Wisconsin's many rural surgeons. Rural surgery is really its own animal. At our Quaternary Medical Center, even our general surgeons are specialists of a sort, but in rural communities, general surgeons don't just operate on every part of the body. They also do things that at our place are the province of gastroenterologists, otolaryngologists, and even obstetricians. I'm consistently in awe of Jill, in part because the idea of doing a C-section without backup makes me very nervous, and in part because she's just one of the most level-headed, friendly people you'll ever meet. She took time out of homeschooling her kids and seeing patients by telemedicine to talk to us about what life is like in smaller hospitals, far from the resources and the risks of big cities in the time of COVID. Here's Jill. Jill, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us from uh, up north there in Wisconsin. Thanks so much for the opportunity. So you are uh, a rural surgeon, a practicing rural surgeon at a critical access hospital and also the in initiative leader for the Surgical Collaborative of Wisconsin's Rural Surgery Initiative. So I'm, I'm really fascinated to, to hear what you have to say about your hospital's preparations for COVID-19 and how things have changed for your practice as your hospital gets ready to potentially see its first patients uh, any day now. Yeah, absolutely. So my experience that I'll share is obviously my own experience with our hospital, but also I'll, I'll pitch in with some of the experience I've heard from other similar small hospitals in the area. Our practice essentially changed nearly completely overnight. Um, we went from having three and a half surgeons on, on staff and present in the hospital on any given day to um, essentially taking our surgeons off so that we are only on a one week at a time rotation. So if you're not the call surgeon who's on for a week at a time, you're not in the hospital unless there's a critical patient need that brings you in. So we went from really busy clinics and endoscopy days and surgery days to trying to figure out how to take care of patients at home and how to keep ourselves and our patients and our center safe. Um, which I think is probably pretty similar to what everyone else is doing. From what I've heard in larger institutions, that's happening as well. We have uh, associated with our system several um, smaller satellite clinics, 
and we've been trying to uh, mobilize our resources to move some of the patients and the physicians that were working at the larger hospital out to those smaller clinics in order to try to separate sick and well which obviously we know is not as easy as it sounds in COVID times when we don't necessarily know who the sick are. We've also changed how we triage patients. We have a drive-through triage center for any patient who has any respiratory complaints. Those patients are seen there and triaged as far as severity and also appropriate testing is given, although we have been struggling with availability of COVID testing, which I think is also a theme across across the state and certainly in our smaller centers. One of the things that I have learned so much from you about in the, the time that you and I have worked together is just the sheer breadth of what rural surgeons do. I think, you know, here at our quaternary center, you know, there's there's a sort of one person per organ or sometimes more than one person per organ, whereas you up there are are responsible for a vast array of procedures including some things that you know are bread and butter general surgery but also you know obstetrics and gastroenterology how how are you finding being like a, a single person on call in a hospital that's who's responsible for so much of the procedural work well in some senses it seems a little simpler now because really truly the only things that get done while you're on call are the absolute emergency things and so when I'm normally on call for a week at a time, I'm also managing my job as the director of breast care and taking care of a lot of other elective cases. Obviously, things take a lot longer. ORs take longer because of turnover and care that's given to intubation and extubation procedures. But absolutely, you know, I, when I'm on call, I cover GI bleeds and I cover colonoscopies and EGDs and I do C-section call as well as all the urgent and emergent general surgery call that comes in. I think that when we were residents, we were always taught that the hardest part of being a surgeon is knowing when to operate. And you spend five years learning when when to operate and when not to. And I feel like we all need a crash course in that right now with the new rules with COVID and none of us are getting that. So I think that the majority of what we're doing is trying to figure out risks versus benefits of operating versus not. And I think that's always a little bit more complicated in a rural hospital based on the um, infrastructure we may or may not have, but now even more complicated when we know that our, our larger centers are seeing more COVID than we are. And so the question is whether shipping somebody to a larger center is a higher risk or a lower risk operation at this point. Um, right. That's another issue that I have has come up in my mind, at least, as we've been trying to triage patients and offer operations appropriately. And some of that has to be colored, too, by the fact that you've dropped a lot of inpatient clinic visits, just right. as we've done here, you know, like to the degree we can do telemedicine where we're trying to. How's it, how's it been making that transition to telemedicine? Or were you doing it at all before? Or have you literally just like stepped that end into your process in the last two weeks? We, we were doing no formal telemedicine. I think that any doctor who tells you they don't do telemedicine is probably wrong because I know that we all do a lot of time on the telephone with our patients, essentially for free care, just essentially to organize things and, and keep keep the ship floating. Yeah. Um, that was before COVID, obviously. But right now, um, yeah, no, we never had done any formal telemedicine platforms. And I'm actually very proud of our center for being able to get that up and going. I believe that most of our physicians are now seeing folks via telemedicine. I got an email a couple of days ago from 
our administration saying that we had had over 1,000 telemedicine encounters in the last week, um, oh which I found just to be absolutely astounding. And I think sometimes the small hospitals don't have as many resources as the larger hospitals, but sometimes we also have uh, ability to change a little bit quicker too, because there's less levels of administration and less levels of, um, it's just not as big of a project to get, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 doctors online as it is to get several hundred. How are you doing it? Like what's your specific, uh, are you using a specific platform or are you? Um... Yeah, so we're using the Doxy platform. Some, uh, some folks are doing Doxy from in the hospital in the clinics at the hospital and some of us are doing it from home. The goal is to get it so essentially all of us are operating from home as much as possible. Most people have a day or a half a day or two days or whatever they have decided with their staff is absolutely necessary for urgent and emergent patient care in the clinic. And then the rest of the work is do being done from home for, for everybody really. And it's a combination of, of telephone visits and video visits where, you, where it's Correct. possible. Right, and then obviously the significant amount of triaging that has to do with our cases, our surgical cases and our endoscopic cases. Um, what's urgent, what's emergent. And I think that you probably in your center as well are realizing that with every new email from the uh, powers that be, that's changing as well. So kind of feels like reevaluating every case on a every couple of day basis is taking up a good bit of time as well. Yeah, as you sort of decide things that weren't urgent become more urgent. And, and there's not a lot of elective surgery that we truly elective surgery that right. that anybody was doing to start out, right? There's no one's having surgery as a just hobby or just for fun. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, it's, it's, it has really become this issue of, and we've been revisiting this recently, you know, about a month ago, we started making these, you know, decisions about what is, you know, truly urgent and what could be postponed. And, you know, we're, we're constantly revisiting that list, seeing like, who can we get in? What's our bandwidth also knowing like you know we have to preserve PPE and we have to preserve medications and all of these things so right and that every every surgery obviously comes with a risk of complication and so what's the risk to the patient of the surgery if everything goes perfect but then again what's the risk if they end up needing blood or needing inpatient stay or ICU stay or even transfer. I think all yeah. of those things just weigh a lot heavier. Now, as surgeons, we're pretty good at, you know, in the words of our, our good friends, Frozen, doing the next right thing, but not knowing what the next right thing is, is difficult, I think. Yeah, such uncharted territory. Do you right. find that it's, you're able to identify and triage problems effectively with telemedicine? Can you get um, better at that with practice? The video is better than telephone, I think. Yeah. Although I do find that patients sometimes feel a little bit intimidated by the video and a lot of times they feel embarrassed seeing their faces on the video. Mm. And I'm not sure if that's a rural low technology thing or if it's just that everyone's still getting used to it. But that, that seems to be my experience to some extent. Most of my patients are really, really grateful for the opportunity and glad to stay out of the clinics. I think like everyone, we have patients that are um, pushing really hard for things that really in no world would be considered emergent, not even before COVID. And then the patients that you tell them that you're delaying their cancer surgery are just so grateful. And thank you so much for protecting me, Doc. Oh my gosh. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> right. We yeah. hope that you're safe too, doctor. Are you doing okay? You know, oh. it, it's just, it's a really interesting study on perspective as well, I think. Right. I mean, I think we are, everyone is coming to grips with you know, what does this mean and, and how do we stay safe? And I've had that same experience calling 
patients where they're saying, oh yeah, I was expecting this call and I, I wasn't, you know, had you told me I could come, I'm not sure I would have wanted to because I think, you know, everybody is uncertain, you know, where the risk benefit lies for, for any of these things. Right. And I think, you know, I think that telemedicine's obviously its largest detriment as, you know, just a straight clinical thing is that you can't actually lay your hands on a patient and touch them. You know, an abdominal exam is, is critical to a surgeon, as you know. I'm a breast surgeon. I do a lot of breast cancer care. Doing a consult without doing a breast exam is just absurd to me. Right. And at least for now, what I've been doing with those patients where I really feel like an exam is critical is kind of triaging them via telemedicine and then if I think that this is something that we're going to need to do surgery for, finding a way to do my actual exam on the same day that they're going to be there for their preoperative exam and just trying to at least minimize the patient's exposure in the clinic. I think another thing that we've had to try to get really good at here, which most surgeons are not really good at, is letting our partners do things as, as things come up. And so uh, at least for me, I like to take care of every little thing about every one of my patients. Right. But our schedule now of not being in the hospital for periods of time in order to keep ourselves out and also to protect the patients means that our partners need to be able to cover some of our things for us. And obviously our partners are very capable and wonderful at doing that. But I think that for surgeons across the board, that's a hard thing to give up. Yeah, we've done, we've had the same issue here in trying to sort of remember that your, your partner is the person on and they're the one in the hospital and your time will come and and when you're there, you're you're the guy or the woman. Right. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that's not just a St. Croix <laughs> struggle or a yeah. A no, that's us as struggle. well. Yeah. It's it's um. And I, I think the first time we brought that up, it was sort of a shock to the system of like, oh my gosh, like that probably is the biggest cultural shift we've made um, in a way. Right. And I mean, as a physician, I think that's hard. Also a patient at this time. And as a patient, it was a shock to me, even though I knew as a physician, we were doing that. Yeah. <laughs> when, yeah. when it was my turn as a patient for that to happen, I was like, wait, 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 this isn't the way this is supposed to be. So um, even knowing why and absolutely understanding, I can see why it's a shock to both the physician taking care of people. You know, we just, we have relationships with people and yeah. our patients aren't just they're, they're not just numbers and they're not just checkboxes. And that's true across the board, not just in rural centers. But I think that's been something that's been very hard for us. And I'm very grateful for outstanding partners who I absolutely trust 100%. But still giving up your complete ownership of patients, I think, is difficult. What do you think the sort of knock-on effects of COVID will be? I mean, as your place has changed and adapted in the post-COVID world, presumably we will eventually get there. Um, what, uh, what do you think that, you know, changes to, to your practice will be long-term? Cause I, I get the sense like, you know, at this point, we're not looking at bouncing back to just being, doing things the way we used to. Right. I don't ever think, you know, I keep thinking I'm waiting for that day when all of a sudden they just say the COVID restrictions are turned off and let's all have a big party and start looking at each other and touching each other again. Right. And I don't think that that's going to happen. I think it's going to be a gradual ebb and flow probably over the next, I mean, realistically, until we have a vaccine. You know, yeah. I think we'll see, we'll see cases peak and we'll see cases fall. But until we have some sort of vaccine to help prevent this massive overload of the system, 
I think that we're just going to have to continue to adapt and change. I hope that, you know, obviously I hope COVID isn't the, or is the big thing and that there's not another thing lurking out there, but I think that developing rapid tests with, that have good accuracy as well as antibody testing so we know who's theoretically safe will be really helpful for figuring things out again. I think that we're, once things essentially you know, clear up a little bit, obviously we're going to have to then figure out triaging of getting all of these people that we've postponed and canceled back into the system and how do we do that. I think that there will be a lot right, of frustration. There are some very busy days ahead of us. Right, a lot yeah. of frustration on the part of patients over, well, I've waited this long, now why isn't it my turn, when there may be people that were more urgent than they. I think there's just going to have to be a lot of flexibility. None of us in our lifetimes, unless we have listeners here who were born before 1918, have seen this kind of disruption in our world or in our clinic schedules, for sure. I think there's just going to have to be a lot of flexibility and a lot of teamwork and hopefully a lot of trust of the organizations that are able to look at the data and give us reasonable ideas about when we can resume. It's just, it's so weird to think about what it's going to look like on the other side. I, I hope that things look, look reasonably normal again on the other side. I don't like taking care of patients, not according to the, you know, the strict guidelines of always, everything is always directed at that patient first when you have to take into account a lot of the resource issues that fortunately we in America haven't had to deal with as much as some of our third world partners. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I feel that the rural hospitals, uh, you know, obviously you guys are more resource limited in terms of, you know, how many ventilators you have and your maybe, you know, supply chains for PPE and all of that. But um, on the other hand, you know, you're, you're probably more used to working in a somewhat resource limited setting than than the big academic centers. So I, I expect that we'll be looking to you guys for guidance to some degree on how to, how to manage in these kind of constrained settings. Yeah, it's really something. You know, I've been really impressed with our administration. I think that everybody can say that every day, every COVID day feels like it takes a year. Um, it just feels <laughs> like there's so much that happens and so much that goes on. I can't believe it's only been a couple of weeks that this has been really feeling like a huge threat here. But, you know, even in within the first week, our, our system had really figured out a great way of kind of revamping our operating rooms and turning them into ICUs and um, changing from positive pressure to negative pressure based on who's there. And, wow. and I'm, I'm really, really proud of them for that ingenuity and for that forward thinking nature. And when I read about what's going on in the, the larger centers, I don't know that it's that much different. Obviously, we're all just preparing for the worst and bracing and hoping that when and if it happens that we have enough equipment and enough people. Speaking of people, I mean, we've had, you know, we have people that just keep on recreating themselves and reinventing themselves and relearning, um, going back to internet resources or prior experience. We have some ex-military folks that have really stepped up and are a little bit better at Kind of coming up with some ad hoc procedures and so forth. We have some folks with some critical care experience that are working on that and teaching the rest who haven't been doing as much of that. And we do have really good resources in the cities that, you know, obviously we haven't haven't had to do kind of a, can you tell us how to do it here? We usually send people there, but we do have good relationships with the folks in the larger hospitals. And I think that's going to be important. And I, I really think that the internet is kind of the great equalizer in all of this. You know, 
none of the doctors know how to handle this. This is new to everybody. And so there are so many great resources out there on the internet of what people are seeing in their hospital and how they're doing it and how long people are in ventilators and what works and what doesn't and when to prone and when not to and things like that that I think even 10 or 15 years ago wouldn't have been nearly as real time. And I think that the way physicians are coming together on this to support each other, as opposed to everyone keeping their data secret in order to be the first one to publish it has been inspiring. Yeah, I mean, I think this is gonna completely change the way we think about doing peer review and, and you know, pre-publication of, of manuscripts and all of this. I mean, it's like we've been hauling, we've hauled ourselves forward two centuries in, in many ways. and I. You know, I think that and the sort of camaraderie around all of us sort of being in this together strike me as as things, you know, from this era, one of, you know, some very, it's a short list, but things I'd like to keep. Um, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, and obviously it's not all sunshine and roses in anyone's hospital. And I think right. we all struggle with the ideas of what happens when we run out of face masks and what happens when there's not a gown anymore. And what happens if we actually have to make those hard decisions about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. Right. Um, none, of us, none of us look forward to that. And I think that there will probably be a time to talk about what could have been done better um, when this is all over. But right now, I think we just all need to focus on being available to each other and supporting each other in whatever role we have, whether that's on the outside without a super busy hospital, maybe maybe taking on some of the other cases, whether that is supporting the busier places by either sending staff or sending resources or equipment. I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like. And I think that it's going to be good for our systems to try to have to figure some of that out too. It's so important to remember that however isolated we feel, like everybody feels the same way. Like everybody's experiencing mm -hmm. this, right? Like, and, and, and to remember that there's that commonality of experience in a rural hospital in Northern Wisconsin and New York Presbyterian, right? I mean, like it may be degrees of difference, but like we're, we're all facing this together and, and in it together as a, as a profession. Right. And I, you know, even if this isn't, you know, this month isn't our, our surge and we're not going to look like New, New York Presbyterian right now, Corona is not going away. COVID-19 is not going away. And I think we all need to learn enough to be able to handle it until we can do something to make it go away, whether that's a treatment or a vaccine or what, but that's not happening in the next five minutes, you know? Kind of scary, kind of scary as a human, as a physician, as a parent, as a child, you know, all of those things. When you think about high risk groups and you kind of look around your, your, your populace at all the people that you love and the, the patients that you care for, and you just hope that at the end of this, we're able to do well enough to keep most of them around. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and, and share your perspectives. It's always just so edifying to hear the, about the work you're doing. And it's just a great pleasure to, uh, to have a chance to chat. So hopefully we can uh, check back again with you uh, in the not too distant future. Absolutely, take care. Thanks so much for the opportunity and let me know if I can help with anything else. Awesome, thanks Jill. Thanks so much to Dr. Jill Tees for giving us the perspective from a rural surgeon. COVID-19 will likely touch every doctor in America. And while the stories from New York, Detroit, Miami, and New Orleans are dominating the news, this story is as varied as the rest of our nation. I think we have a lot to learn from people who are used to having to get creative in places without infinite resources, because right now, that's all of us. We'll have some links to sites for doctors trying to get up to speed on care outside their comfort zone in the show notes. COVID-19 is moving fast and we're trying to keep up. To me, that means aiming for two to three episodes of the podcast every week. That's a lot faster than we're used to and 
Even then, it feels like we're always reporting news from a year ago. This past week, we had just one episode because I returned to clinical service for a week of pediatric surgery call. We're lucky to be living under a fairly flat curve, but even so, being in the hospital is a surreal experience. It seems quiet, nearly empty in the halls and common spaces. It's busy on the floors. Everyone's in face shields and masks, which makes conversation hard, especially at six feet. Rounding on some patients by video. No partners around. We're avoiding each other to maintain our workforce, which, of course, is an abstract term for the fact that some or all of us will probably get sick. But going into the hospital for the first time in two weeks was not scary. It was a relief to finally be able to do something about this problem, to take care of patients, to apply two decades of training and practice into doctoring, and to have healing others be the only thing to focus on for a few days, and that felt like a blessing. It's the coming home that's hard. Being the only gap in our family's bubble, doing a decontamination routine in the garage and then running for the shower, and knowing ever more clearly that this is the new normal, that there's no clear end in sight just yet, that the greatest part of what has already seemed like a great challenge is in front of us, and that we're on our own together to fix this. My great friend Ian reminded me of Lincoln's speech at Cooper Union from another time when the nation was under siege and the world was upside down. Neither let us be slandered from our duty by false accusations against us, nor frightened from it by menaces of destruction to the government, nor of dungeons to ourselves. Let us have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, let us, to the end, dare to do our duty as we understand it. Be well. If you have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at J-E Kohler. That's K-O-H-L-E-R. You can also send me an email at Kohler at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass.